VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're listening to the Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to the game, the top, top football podcast from the Times. I'm Alison Rudd and I'm joined in the studio by Rory Smith. Pedro Pinto is on the line from Merseyside and from George Culkin's kitchen in the northeast. It's George Culkin. Before we begin, just a small reminder that the game podcast is going on the road. You can join the football debate at live shows in Newcastle and Manchester. Tickets cost £5 for Times Plus members and £7.50 for non-members. To book, visit www.ctickets.com forward slash the times or call 0871 620 4025. Later, we'll be discussing the repercussions of the racist chanting in Moscow and the gem unearthed by Jose Mourinho, namely Fernando Torres. But first, we're going to tackle the Warentine derby and what can accurately be called a useful victory for Gus Poyer. So we've got George up in the northeast. George, you were at the game. You can tell us, please, what on earth did Gus Poyer do to turn around from that abysmal defeat, 4-0 defeat to Swansea, and make them look like a team that could just escape relegation? Yes, well, it was uh, it was one of those... Well, they're all the same those days, and it's that sort of fear and loathing and sort of feeling of nausea in the stomach from uh, from about three weeks before to uh, probably still settling now. But it's... Uh, you know, it was quite some response to what had happened at to Swansea, and I think, from, by, you know, from his own admission, what he did was sort of went back to basics a little bit. He played fullbacks in their fullback position. Um, you know, it was it was really sort of as rudimentary as that. Really, there was nothing much fancy, but you know, there was spirit and there was endeavour and there was defiance. And when Newcastle came back at them and equalised. Heads didn't drop, which is what's happened for most of the rest of the season. As you know, they've played in spells, twenty or thirty minutes, done okay, and then as soon as a goal's gone against them or or, or sort of fortune has turned against them, they've they've collapsed. And it wasn't there. It wasn't there yesterday, which I think is the is the encouraging thing. Newcastle weren't very good, I have to say, and I think you know that will have encouraged Sunderland as well, but. These these games can be completely transformative. I mean, you know, then then they're, they're never going to decide titles or trophies or, or kind of anything substantive. But they do have a they do sort of have a knack of determining or defining seasons and momentum and moods. And really, if you wanted any game to sort of set your season uh, alight, it's it's that one. So you would say that they've got a chance now. I would have said yesterday morning that they were 
that they were already dead and buried, but I think they've got a chance now. But it doesn't sound or seem as if all Sunderland fans would agree with you. Um, I think you pointed out in the paper today that there were 3,000 fewer people at the game than could have been there, which for a derby is odd, but it does seem to imply that there was a sort of pre-judgment there that even if we win this, it's not going to matter. Well, it's just been so incredibly, incredibly wearing if you're a Sunderland supporter. I mean, you know, even as a journalist, I've, you know, I'm kind of finding it very difficult to, to to write up players saying, well, it's a new era and, you know, the manager's got us smiling again and need a breath of fresh air because it was six months prior to that that we were writing the same stuff about Paolo Di Canio and then you know before then it was what you know a year a year 16 months before we were saying the same thing about Martin O'Neill and you know so the other side of it is that the well that some of them keep going to is asking for their for the support of fans you know the sort of the case with Phil Barzi for example is an interesting one he was you know completely banished by Paolo Di Canio sort of held up as the root of all e- evil in modern football and, um, you know, sort of lack of discipline at the club, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Gus Poyet comes in, immediately calls him spectacular and exceptional and asks fans to sort of, you know, then believe the opposite of everything that they believed the previous six months. And I think it becomes, you know, it becomes wearing. It becomes very, very wearing. And I think, you know, I think that attendance was sort of symbolised that kind of quite, quite neatly, really. <laughs> it's kind of typical that, Having you know, someone have given up. That, uh, you know that then here comes that result, and uh, suddenly they have to kind of invest their faith again. But I mean, if you've been a Sunderland supporter, it's, ju- it's just been a dreadful. It's been a dreadful few months. You've been asked to sort of buy into a revolution, and it's failed spectacularly. On the plus side, Rory, there was Fabio Barini who took a lot of criticism when he was at Liverpool, famous for just being part of the uh, medical scene of. The documentary, the, thri- the thriving <laughs> medical scene, but uh, he looked good. Yeah, he's he's a funny one, Brini. I I thought Rogers kind of got rid of him a little bit too soon. I'm not quite sure what the thinking was. There. I know he was poor last season when when he played, and the biggest disappointment was that he was always injured. But he, he's he's technically a good player. He works really hard, and it, yeah, he he. I thought he maybe could have been given a, a little bit more of a chance at Liverpool this season. Could well be a kind of a great little coup for Sunderland to get him on loan if they can keep him fit. Great goal, obviously, but I, I, I tend to side with George a little bit. To be honest, I think it's it's dangerous drawing conclusions from derbies because they are such kind of emotional occasions. But also, I, th- I think the problem at Sunderland runs deeper than the manager. I think the problem is that most of the players are rubbish, and that's kind of they've got themselves in this. In this you look through that side, and there's not. If you're describing Phil, Phil Barsley as exceptional, even if it's to try and convince the fans to buy into what you're doing, then I think that's a, that's a that's a real problem. Just Phil Barsley, under no circumstances, is exceptional at anything, unless he's got some sort of secret talent. Pedro, I mean, is, isn't it a good idea, though, for a, an ordinary player to be told he's exceptional? Then you get more out of him than you might otherwise, surely? Uh, look, I, I, I was really surprised that they, uh, they collapsed so easily against Swansea, because I know, I know Gustavo Poyet, and uh, I've had the opportunity to spend some time with him, and I know he's... He's someone who can really work on players' egos and motivation. And even as bad as Sunderland had been this season, I thought he would have more of an immediate impact than he, than he did. So for me, it's not a surprise that they came out with a, with a victory against Newcastle because at least from an initial standpoint, forgetting the tactics, forgetting the organization of the team, which is also 
uh, good at doing, like he's he's proven before. I, I think he's a great guy, and players will take to him very quickly. And in a derby game, I guess if if you add that to the fact that they're already really motivated to beat Newcastle, that that helps. So he will do that to players, and he will big them up, and he will in, improve their their ego um, and their confidence. And and it's just a matter of seeing how much that will do to carry this team forward. They still have got some quality players. I still like Adam Johnson. Uh, I still like Stephen Fletcher. Uh, and they've had, they've had injuries. Like Rory was saying, Borini isn't as bad as he was at Liverpool, but maybe he isn't as great as the player who had a, a great half-season in Roma. The, the jury's still out on him. So I expect Sunderland to improve, actually. I'm more, I'm more optimistic on that side because uh, Poyet, at, at least over the, the first month or six weeks or so, will, will have a big impact. George, um... Pedro mentioned Adam Johnson. He's a bit of an enigma. I mean, he he went from looking really quite special, lovely setup for the goal, and then he sort of stomps off, looking a bit sullen when he's substituted and doesn't know how to defend. I mean, what, how do you rate him? Yeah, and he was, you know, he he's, he didn't he didn't uh, track Matthew Debushi for for Newcastle's goal as well. He just completely switched off, um, which wasn't great. I mean, I think you sort of all last season. Sunderland fans were waiting for for Johnson to sort of to take off and show show uh, what he can do, what he did do in flashes for Man City. I mean, you know, Martin O'Neill sort of spoke sort of quite openly about what the the process was. The process was getting somebody who had a reputation as making an impact as a substitute, mainly, um, or you know, or sort of in games maybe when he wasn't sort of pivotal, he caught the eye at Sunderland his task was to be the main man and it, it never happened last season. There's been flashes of it this season, but again, it's not consistent. And, you know, I, I, it wasn't a surprise to me that he kind of came off. He came off yesterday. I mean, I, I, I do actually agree with, I agree with Rory. I mean, another thing about O'Neill is that sort of after the season when they, when he came in and, and they stayed up kind of quite comfortably in the end and that season trailed off, he, he wanted to kind of completely rip the squad up and start again. That didn't happen. Ironically, De Canio, although he didn't sign the players, that happened under De Canio this summer. They brought in 13, 14 players. None of the managers or first team head coaches, as they're called now, have 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 rated these players. That's that seems to be the sort of thing, one thing that links them. Because even yesterday, there were only two new signings in Sunderland's team in the starting team, and I think that's a worry. They, you know, they finished 17th last season and they lost their three best players in. Uh, Sessegnon, Mignolet, Danny Rose, Fletcher obviously um, is, is still is still very important to them, but was injured for a lot of last season. And I think that's the that's the concern. Have they got the quality to build on what they did yesterday? For me, you know, that's that's the big issue for for Poirier. I think what's interesting, apart from Mignolet and and Sessegnon, who kind of and Danny Rose obviously was always going back back to Spurs on loan, but you, you sell Mignolet and Sessegnon, who are certainly Mignolet is one of your best players. Sessegnon's in and out, but one in every three or four games, he'll he'll be quite good. That's kind of Stefan Sessegnon's Stefan Sessegnon's job in life is to be quite good. One in every three or four games, but they've not shifted the players who are the problem, which is kind of the core of the squad. So they've they've done this weird thing where they've sold some of their better players to raise money to bring in worse play, lots of worse <laughs> players. And I think at some point, does someone have to say to Roberto Defanti, who who was a very curious appointment? Anyway, yeah. as technical director, who, according to the the much missed Gabriele Marcotti, who's not here, was nothing to do with Paolo Di Canio. He he just happened to be Italian. He didn't come in 
because the county recommended him, or, or even as he knew. No, him. it was the other way. It was the other way around. It was yeah. the other way around. I mean, O'Neill, O'Neill met Defante before the end of uh, was sort of you know back in March, April, some, sometime like that, and was asked for kind of his opinions on the whole scouting setup by Ellis Short. So that that process was underway um, when when Martin O'Neill was there. I mean, I don't you know I don't sort of object to Sunderland trying to do something different. I think they badly needed to do something different because the sort of process of you know, trying to sort of do in- incremental improvement by bringing in experienced Premier League players wasn't working or hadn't worked. And there was no, you know, they, they suffer from the lack of identity, which, you know, a club like Sunderland with their history, you know, certainly shouldn't do. But, but they have, I mean, they haven't, they haven't been different. They haven't been interesting. You know, I think, I think it was kind of brave and interesting that they should kind of go down a different route. But um, as with all of these things, it's about the people you get to fill the positions, yeah. uh, whether it's manager, head coach, whatever you call them, director of football, chairman, chief exec, whatever it is, players, they have to be the right people and there's not evidence um, or you know, or there's evidence that, that the people haven't been right so far. But if you look at DeFanti's career career path, what what he did, he made his name bringing Swedish players to Italy and he's trying to, trying to repeat that by signing, there's a lot, I mean there's a, a load of those players that, that, that they signed in the summer who... who you wouldn't have expected. I don't think anyone would have expected them to go straight to Sunderland's team. But the other thing on Johnson, just very quickly, does Alison Jane antsy and wants to move on? At what point do we stop thinking of Adam Johnson as being like this? This great unfulfilled talent. How old is he? He's like twenty six, twenty seven. He's he's just not very good. He's all right. He can kind of cut in from the right and shoot, and occasionally one will go in. Never does anything else. He's not done anything else for five years. Yeah, but he's got. He's obviously got a football brain. No, but there's this weird perception of Johnson that because he was quite good as a sub for City sometimes, that he is this sort of great unfulfilled talent. And oh, if only Adam Johnson clicks, he's he can carry the team. He can't. It's complete nonsense. There's no evidence for it. And we've got ourselves into this weird sort of perception. Adam Johnson is a potential star. Adam Johnson is a potential star. He's not. He's all right. He's an okay left winger, and a sort of slightly less than okay right no, winger. No, He's, he's inconsistent. He can be very good and he can be very poor. Very. Let's just wrap this up with a very quick word from Pedro on Newcastle. Was it just that they were without they were without Colicini and Taylor, Pedro, or are they just not that good this season? Look, this is a very thin squad, so any player that's going to miss out is going to make a huge difference for for, for Pardew. I, I'm really confused with the kind of way they've built this team. Uh, I still think that uh, since they lost uh, Ba, Cissé looks like a completely different player. I I don't know if he's longing to have Demba back so he can go back to doing what he did best. I I just think this Newcastle team is is, is very unbalanced, and and I'll be surprised if they they finished above 10th, even above uh, 12th, if they don't get some some players in um, in January. So I'm yeah I'm, I'm not surprised that uh, really that they that they lost uh, any time they're going to be shorthanded that they're not going to get points. It's as simple as that. Right. Let's move over to Stamford Bridge, uh, the drama of a late winner for Chelsea. I was really tempted to kick off the discussion about the fact that what is more surprising that we now know that Andre Schürrle according to the Kaiser, should be called Shirley, or the fact that uh, Gary Neville has never watched Airplane nor indeed ever heard of the movie. But instead, I'll be well behaved and we'll talk about the fact that it seems, I think to most people, well, we'll find out, City did enough to deserve a point until the horrendous mix-up between Joe Hart and Nastash Itch. Whose fault was it, Rory? Uh, I think it's Joe Hart, isn't it? The goalkeeper is the last line, the last line probably has to, has to um, 
to communicate what he's doing to his defenders. But shouldn't his defenders know that he has a tendency to come for those type of balls? Yeah, probably. I, I, yeah, you, you, it will be harsh purely to, to sort of point the finger at Joe Hart, but then it's just it's just so easy to point the finger at Joe Hart. It's, <laughs> it, it's just just fits, doesn't it? It's you know it's, it would take a lot of work for me to think about kind of how you know what should Nastasic have done in this position? You know, how, what sort of training drills do they go through? Joe Hart's made mistakes before. Let's just blame him because it's easier. I know that's that's facetious. Sorry, I was just going to say it's symptomatic, isn't it? I mean, whether it's actually his fault in that in that situation or not, it's symptomatic of a goalkeeper and defence aren't comfortable with each other at the moment, and that is largely to do with the fact that Joe Hart's been making mistakes. So, you know, in a position like that, neither party is sure what the other one's going to do, and therefore, at the end of that, you get a terrible mistake. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and you, you have to sort of cast the blame collectively. But I think. If you were to pinpoint one person, it's the goalkeeper more than the defender. The goalkeeper has to communicate to the defender what he's going to do. And that was the, that was the shortcoming. Pedro, was it easy for Torres to nip in in that situation or did he still have a lot of work to do and need to be sharp mentally to anticipate it? He deserves every credit for, for, for in, the, in the 90th minute running onto a ball like that because maybe eight times out of ten, that's, that's an, an, an easy ball for the goalkeeper to get to or for the defender to, to head back to the goalkeeper comfortably. I, I think we saw a, a Torres yesterday who, who looked like the one that I used to watch at, at Atletico Madrid even before he came here um, to, to the Premier League. He was, he was driven. He, was, he looked so fast. His first step, again, looked like the, the Torres of, of old. And I, I do think that Hart deserves 70% of blame for that because his communication obviously wasn't good enough. He didn't shout early enough that it was the goalkeeper's ball. Uh, or he didn't stay back and, and, and ask for uh, Nastasic to, to head it back to him. Um, I think Torres deserves a lot of credit for believing that he could be in the right place at the right time, and then from a tight angle to keep his head because he'd missed a, a, an easy chance earlier. It hadn't exactly been a fantastic game for him from a productive standpoint. So, um, yeah, I think we need to praise him right now like we criticised him so often mm-hmm. for uh, so many seasons. OK, Roy, let's just clear out the percentages then. So if it's 70% Joe Hart's fault, is it 30% then... Torres is making up of the situation, or is there ten oh, you know, percent for the defender? You have what? to, yeah, give a little bit to Nastasic, don't you? Um, yeah, seventy percent heart, twenty percent Nastasic, ten percent Torres gamble. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got to say, I was in Gelsenkirchen last week for Chelsea's game, and Torres was excellent then as well. He, it was, we, I think we kind of did a. The match report was kind of, is Torres back? You can't say Torres is back because he's he's always coming back, and it never happens. But he he looks, he looks fitter. He looks leaner. He looks like he has more sort of self-belief. He looks like he's bought into Mourinho's methodology. And it's weird because he, he was the one who kind of lobbied Abramovich to get Benitez back or get Benitez to Chelsea. And the thinking was that, that Benitez knows how to get the best out of Torres. So if Benitez can't do it with Torres, no one can, and you can write off Torres. That was, I think that was the logic in Chelsea's hierarchy for making that very unpopular decision. And it's ironic that the sort of anti-Benitez, the great nemesis, seems to be the one who... Although I think Torres did a little bit better at the tail end of last season. It's Mourinho who seems to, be, seems to have done whatever it, whatever it is that actually need, needed to be done to kind of get the best out of Torres. In that case, why has Mourinho refused to accept any praise for doing it? He's saying, I don't know why he's like this, really. I just rested him a bit and, oh, it's come good. He's, I, not, he's I, not even claiming to have, to have tried new methodology or visualisation techniques on him. I think he's a bit embarrassed, uh, actually, uh, with, with Torres' success, because when he came, 
back to London, he, he didn't want to, to play him. He, he didn't want Torres to be part of the team. I think that, that was really clear. I think that there was still a lot of lingering anti-Spanish feelings that, that he brought over um, to London. I think that's one of the reasons why Mata, Torres, Aspilicueta weren't, weren't playing, didn't really get much of a chance. And uh, obviously he deserves credit now for getting him fit uh, and, and, and in form. But initially, I think he can't take credit for it because initially he, he thought Torres was done and he wanted to, to ship him out. So maybe that's what he needed. Maybe that's what, instead of being indulged by yeah. Ancelotti and Villas-Boas and, and Di Matteo and Benitez, maybe what Torres actually needed yeah. was someone to come into the club who was bigger than the Torres, kind of, not, not bigger than Torres, but bigger than Abramovich's desire to see Torres succeed and say, actually, do you know what, Sodji, I'm not going to play yet, I don't fancy it. And maybe that's what sort of brought Torres out of this funk. Just the big problem with Torres the last two years has been that he blames everyone but himself for his poor form. And if you speak to people who work with him, that's what he does. It's sort of, oh, no, it's, they weren't putting the balls in the right areas, or I'm not that sort of striker, or I'm not do- I need to do this, they have to do this. And it's this complete sort of refusal to accept any culpability at all for the fact that he's been terrible. And now you wonder if Mourinho's come in and said, well... No, actually, Fernando, it is your fault, so sort it out. And if you don't, then I'm not going to play you. And maybe that's what he needed. Yeah. Twitter was funny. I was, I, was, sorry, I was just going to say, of course, that's the, you know, that's the kind of the big thing about Chelsea is that you know, they don't do things as you would expect them to or, or as most, most English clubs do. Um, you know, the signings aren't necessarily made by the managers. There's this sort of interesting sort of splits between authority and you know, who actually has the authority of the football clubs. And there's, there's, there's been times when it's felt like players have more kind of power than than coaches or managers or whatever but you know that's never going to be something that's going to happen when Mourinho's at the football club and I think that I do think that's an interesting uh, sort of dynamic we all know that Mourinho is looking for kind of strikers high profile strikers over the summer and there looks to be a bit of anger in the way Torres is playing or, or you know sort of defiance and all that sort of thing but for us it's become like American news networks wanting to be the first to kind of declare the result of an election, um, you know, we've wanted to sort of declare that Torres is back and the striker that that you saw at Liverpool. But you know, there have been there have been signs of that in the last in the last in the last few games that, that there's a real sort of anger about him. I mean, I thought he was brilliant in the game where he was sent off against uh, it was against Tottenham, wasn't it? And you know, sort of looked looked to carry that on, looked has, has carried that on since. And I thought he was, I thought he was sensational yesterday. No, George, I would, I think I disagree. I think the media on the whole have been queuing up to to claim that he's dead and buried. I mean, Twitter was hilarious when he scooped that shot over the crossbar. I mean, people well, were but, saying people were staking their reputations on the fact this was now a fact. Torres was no, but you, I I think over. George is. I, I normally agree with you on, as a point of principle, Alison, because you're wonderful. But I agree with George on this. I think there is a a grand irony to the fact that when when Torres initially struggled, there was this desire, no question, to write him off and say, ah, you've wasted all that money, it's terrible, isn't he rubbish? And sort of everything he did was proof of his his failure and his kind of demise. But I think for the last year, there's been a desire to say Torres is back. It's the same as there's this perception that the media don't want want England to do badly because we sort of th- there's the idea that we thrive when there's all this controversy and scandal but England winning sells papers it's the same with Torres I think people want to see Torres doing well just to- as you're listening to me Daisy Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts that's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks Daisy there's more to iPhone 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. If he does well, is a genuine star. He's a genuine star of world football. He was when he, 2007, 2008, that blonde hair flowing in the, in the breeze and stamping past defenders. He was the kind of the iconic Premier League player after Ronaldo left. And I think people want him to be back. And there has been this rush to declare, Torres is back. This is the real Torres. That Torres has gone, long gone. He's been, it's five years since we've seen him. But there is no question that he is showing he can still be a very, very useful, very dangerous striker who will occasionally miss a sitter. Mourinho claimed that he'd just beaten the best team in the league. Pedro, is he just being Mourinho-esque? Or, I mean, City, they've only won four out of 15 points that are available away from home. Are they the best team in the league? Well, I think he's had this opinion since the season started. I spoke with him after the first round of fixtures, and, and he said City, City, for me, are the only real title contenders that can, uh, that, that can beat us uh, because he felt Manchester United are in, are in a transition period. Uh, he doesn't see Arsenal being deep enough to, to, to challenge. Liverpool has been a surprise, I think, to all of us. And, and Tottenham, he still thinks that, that there's too, much, um, uh, too many young players there to, to contend. So I, I don't think he's lying about that. I do think that he believes City are, on paper, the best team in the league, uh, the, the big problem with City is that you have a look at their central defenders, and it's it's not easy to find out why uh, they'll struggle if they'll be put under pressure, which normally happens more in in away games. They've conceded 11 goals, which is more than any of the top seven have conceded right now. And if you think if this was Mancini still in charge of the team, can you imagine the pressure that he'd be under right now? Because they're seventh with with nine matches gone. Uh, I think Pellegrini is a, is a great coach. I think he would take a, a bit a bit of time to adapt to the to the Premier League, especially again in away games where the crowd gets so so loud and teams are more physical and those long balls keep keep coming in like they did in the defeat against uh, Aston Villa. I don't think they deserve to to lose that game uh, yesterday. They did enough to to earn a draw. But yeah, that that away record and the fact that when company isn't there, that the central defenders look really shaky is something that that you have to worry about in away games. George, I mean, they, Pellegrini played De Michaelis. It made his debut for the club at Stamford Bridge. Is is that the sign of a good manager? I mean, what's wrong with playing one of your more experienced defenders in that role? Well, I thought you know he signed signed him in the summer and he's been injured and you know he's a player you know, he knows well and has worked with before. So it's fair enough that he should want to give him a chance. I mean, it's a big game to to come into your debut for you know are they the best team team in the league I don't think they are I think they're the best squad in the league I, I yeah. thought that in the summer and I, st- and I still think that I think they've got incredible players uh, there's no sign you know there's no sign as of yet that they're the best team it kind of stands to reason that Arsenal are the best team at the moment have they got the best squad <laughs> no um, and I think you know between those two things it's quite feasible that Chelsea could come between and show that they're kind of the most powerful team stroke squad. I think, you know, I don't think Mourinho is particularly being mischievous, but I think he's 
he knows what he's doing, and uh, you know, I, I, I think he, I think he has a point, but I'm, I'm not sure that's it's entirely accurate. It suits his narrative, doesn't it? It suits, it suits Jose's kind of narrative. If City are the team that spent all the money, and Chelsea are the kind of the youngsters trying to, to fight against the evil empire, that's the way that Jose. He's been very, very sort of assiduous in casting himself in that role as the I'm not the one who spent all the money, that city, they are under pressure, we're not under pressure. He's, he's repeated it at, at every given opportunity. I saw him for an hour or so for, for a different publication a few weeks ago and he brought it up three times on his own and you sort of think at that point, right, this is a point you're trying to get across, Joseph, isn't it? This is something you want people to believe. It, I, I, don't, I don't know if there's a best team in the Premier League at the moment. I think they're all as inconsistent and unpredictable as each other to be perfectly honest but Chelsea and City be the first two that you'd look at and think are the ones who have the, the depth to, to compete over the course of the season Now I can't work out if it's cool or uncool not to mention the handshake oh let's mention it Rory what's your is it, does it matter that they didn't shake hands? Yes it, it does and I think we should, we should there should be a full scale investigation probably involving Ban Ki-moon and, and it's just really important that men shake hands at all times. I'd like to see it formalised in a sort of sumo sense where they have to do a, a full ritual. <laughs> what can you say after that? Now it's time for the debate. Has football taken two steps backwards in the fight against racism? Yaya Tori complained to referee of Idiu Hattigan about the chanting he heard during City's game against CSKA Moscow. Hattigan ignored the protocol and now we're left with an undignified row as to what exactly was being chanted and whether Russia will ever learn unless there's a boycott of the 2018 World Cup. Uh, there are a lot of options open to the authorities, FIFA, UEFA, the boycotting of the 2018 World Cup would seem the most extreme. George, I mean, do you you feel we're at a state of play now where something that drastic needs to be seriously considered? Well, we know, I mean, you know, first things first, Qatar shows us that whatever happens, the authorities aren't going to, you know, aren't going to move the World Cup. They're not going to move tournaments on the basis of controversies. I mean, so we know that. So... The good thing about a situation like this, if that's the right phrase, and it probably isn't, but is that it's happened, you know, it's happened now, it's happening in 2013, and while that's depressing in some ways, it's also five years before the tournament, um, you know, before the tournament starts. And one thing that I'm sort of quite sort of proud of or pleased with, there's a lot of times when debate in football is not very sophisticated and it's not very uh, mature, et cetera, et cetera, but... Social issues are discussed and they're brought up, and kind of we're all forced to confront them. And you know, to me, that's the that's the powerful thing and the positive thing about this is that we're kind of looking at it, and we're looking at it in a way that um, isn't un, you know isn't comfortable for countries and sports and so on and so forth. So I mean, I know that that's a kind of a bit of a vague um, a vague point. Clearly, it's appalling and it's unacceptable. You know that black players should be should be abused for the colour of the skin. I mean, it's it's repulsive. Um, but I think the fact that it becomes an issue and becomes a story and becomes such a big story um, <laughs> should give us a form of credit. Yeah, but the, I mean, the, the the flip side of that is the people who who know that racism exists and want to see it gone, they will talk about it in a grown up way. The people who 
are still continuing with the monkey chants will, as in this case, deny that they happened at all, Rory. So you're not, you're not, it's all very well that people who are right-minded and a similar mind chatting about it. What matters is getting through to the people who haven't quite yet realised you can't do that. Yeah, I think, I take your point, I think what was more worrying, like I remember with Zenit, when Zenit in, I think 2004, Pedro might, might know more, refused to sign before Gian, Asamoah's brother, uh, because he's black. The fans made it clear that, that they wouldn't tolerate a black player playing for Zenit St. Petersburg. And they've under Spalletti and kind of their, their ownership structure have made it a point of... This, this sounds really bad, but I'm going to have to sort of say it in the way that I think it has to be presented. They have basically gone through a process of signing blacker players gradually. So they've signed darker-skinned players, maybe not African players, but darker-skinned players. Bruno Alves is, isn't black, but he's darker than maybe Zenit would have liked. They don't like foreigners at all, a lot of the ultras. So that I think there are clubs in Russia who are making sort of very, very, it's baby steps, but sl- slow progress towards kind of a more liberal, more open-minded approach. George is absolutely right. And the, the other thing with football that, needs, that we need to remember here and abroad is that it's not football's fault that racism exists. It provides a, a platform for racists, but football will never be free of racism in the stands as long as there are racists in society. That's not, it's not football's sort of, f- f- racism isn't football's problem, it is a problem full stop. What was more worrying is not that the people who made the monkey noises made either made the monkey noises or kind of defended making the monkey noises or denied it. It's that the club kind of enabled them to do it by refusing to accept any sort of blame, just denying it out of hand straight away, coming up with these excuses. I, think, I thought that was really worrying because that's basically kind of a, an official sanction to do it. It's, it's, the, it's CSJ Mosto saying, do what you like and we'll pretend it didn't happen. And that's really, that's, that really troubled me. Pedro, isn't what's going on in Moscow simply a case of if you, if you have just a glimmer of hope that maybe the noises were not racist, they were just trying to wind up the opposition, you will, you will grasp that opportunity to defend your fans. I mean, isn't that generally what clubs will try and do in the first instance, if, especially if they're unreconstructed, as they seem to be often in Russia? Well, that's just an old-fashioned mentality, though, isn't it? And, and the problem that we're dealing with here is a cultural problem. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a football problem. Um, I recently uh, did a, a racism in football documentary for, for CNN, and we actually went to Serbia, where, as you remember, the, the, there was the abuse of, of Danny Rose and other players in an under-21 game, and we went to a, to a Belgrade derby, and we talked to fans, and we talked to several African players who were, who were over there. And it was really, it was really interesting to find out how a lot of times African players, when they went there, they knew it was going to happen at some point. And whether it was in a, in a small town in the middle of nowhere in Serbia or, or at a bigger game, they were, they were trying to get ready for it, for it to happen. They, they, they said that Serbians weren't, weren't racist. They were using it a lot of times just to get under their skin during games. I think the whole debate is is incredibly interesting and it's one that we need to continue to have to educate people. I think the only way to educate is to expose and people in Russia, I think many times they might even be doing these noises and they're doing them because they think that it's funny or it's it's something that's going to upset players but it's simply unacceptable. But the fact is that the local authorities have to educate and 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 this is something that that football can use to, to try to make a difference. You know, we, we, we complain a lot of times that it's a bunch of um, overplayed players, football itself, too much money. But these are the kind of examples that football can set. Uh, so to, to, to answer your question, I think it's not good enough for, for CSK to defend their fans in this, in, this, uh, in this manner. I think they need to investigate. 
and uh, Michel Platini, I'm sure, will will address it more. I know he's having a look at the at the protocol right now. Why the referee there didn't follow it, but the the, the measures are there to be to be followed. Uh, and the referee, if if Yaya Touré complained, the referee should have stopped the game uh, for a while. That, that's 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 my opinion. Pedro, when you were making that documentary, this, this is something that really interests me. Did you find that the more if you look at Serbia, Partizan and Red Star certainly have had African yeah. players for the last sort of ten years, maybe probably longer. They've they've imported players, yeah. black players into Serbia, and that's happened a lot in Russia. There's there's a lot of black players in Russia now. Yeah. Did you get the impression that that process that we had here, where the more black players there were in teams, that was the driving force in forcing racism out of English football? Was there were loads of black players, so you couldn't abuse black players because your team was full of black players, and suddenly it was a bit like, oh yeah, they're good at football and the tour of Vestian is completely irrelevant. Did you get the impression that that process has started in Serbia at all? 100%, and that's, that's the difference. I think the more fans are exposed to, to black players, the, the, the less this will happen, hopefully, with, with education. Uh, some of the African players there told me that some, some, players, some uh, fans in smaller towns wanted to take pictures with them because they'd never seen a black person before. Uh, I think we forget that there is very little of the multi- multiculturalism that we see here in the UK, and this is why why it happened. So yes, going back to the Zenit point, and going back to signing guys like Hulk and Witzel, who again aren't 100% uh, African, but who are dark-skinned. I think maybe they're trying to do something there, uh, and and that's that's what hopefully clubs will continue to do to to not look at the color of skin when when signing players, and and with time, fans will will become educated. So are we are we all agreed then that it's just a question of time? I mean, in the meantime, do we not punish? The clubs and Platini says in today's times um, he doesn't believe it's right to dock points or, or fine fine clubs because it's not their fault. It's not it's it's cultural. It's not the fault of the football club. So, but what do you? How do you progress from here? Are we are we all, are we saying if we give it ten years, it'll sort of slowly dwindle? I think that that does continue and that will, um, you know, that that that, that will carry on. But equally, I don't think there should be room for compromise. And I think um, if if an incident takes place uh, inside a stadium, then that has to be dealt with uh, on its own on its own merits. It, you know, I think it's fine to say societies evolve and change and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but I don't think it's fine to say that that should be an excuse for letting some, something happen in a stadium and not dealing with it. Mm. You know, I think um, those clubs should be forced to play games at the bare minimum. In, you know, uh, with no fans. I mean, I think that should be there should, there should be a clear punishment for for something like that. Right. Let's let's end on a more upbeat note. And Rory, I know you've written about this. Is the stamping out of racism here the one true success story of the FA as it celebrates its 150th birthday? I don't know if you can say it's the one true success story. The FA in 150 years must have done something else that's half decent. I don't know. I think. English football has a tendency to, to blow things slightly out of proportion and to beat itself up a little bit. And the racism thing is quite a good example of that, that, yeah, there have been a few high-profile incidents in the last few years, but if you look at the, the overall pattern, the, um, the process that we've gone through <laughs> in, the last, in the last 20 years as part of this anti-racism project has been remarkable. And football has done an enormous amount of good work. And you know, I wrote on Saturday that Yaya Toure wouldn't be racially abused at Stamford Bridge. That's, the, that's, that's a great thing, that... Even a club that has, unfortunately, and by coincidence, become kind of linked to a lot of the the racism issues in in English football in the last three or four years, there's no there was no chance that Yaya Torre was going to be racially abused by an entire stand making monkey noises, and that 
English football does, should give itself a pat on the back for the way it's dealt with it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to say, I completely agree with that. I mean, when I started watching football sort of on a regular basis in the sort of early mid-1980s, it was um, football stadiums were a breeding ground for National Front. I mean, National Front outside St James's Park, filling, uh, sending magazines and giving away leaflets and literature and stuff like that was a, was a regular sight. And we've moved on so far since those days, it's, it's incredible. And I think it's deeply positive that any time that there's an incident of, you know, one one incident, I'm not going to use the word small incident, but, you know, in, in comparison to those days, each individ, individual incident is now highlighted and condemned immediately. There is not compromise, and I think that's absolutely right. I do think we deserve, uh, when I say we, football deserves, deserves credit for, for that because the prominence that football has means that anything that takes place in football gets huge publicity and I think there is but you know I think there's a lead has been taken and on that optimistic note let's move on to our world famous quick hits Nanny was booed at Old Trafford but Rory he set up United's first goal and you should never jeer your own players anyway should you uh you probably should when it's Nanny um (laughs) He did set up United's first goal, but it was literally the only half-decent thing he did in an hour of football. He was he was terrible. I don't know whether it's constructive to boo your own players, but I heard one fan on 606 on 5 Live say that it was basically just the fans saying to Moyes, we've had enough of him, he, he doesn't try hard enough. I'm baffled by Nani. He is a good footballer when he wants to be, but his inconsistency is, is incredible. Um, so no, it, it, it's best avoided booing your own players, but there are times when you understand. Sturridge and Suarez are seemingly engaged in a competition to find out who can score the most eye-catching goal. George, what impressed you the most about their performances against West Brom? Well, football is such an individual sport these days. We, we forget it as a team sport, but um, sometimes because we focus so much on personality. But one of the things I love most about football is that it's about partnerships. And here we see one of the great partnerships. And that's, I think, is the thing that I like most about it, um, that the sum of their parts, although they're both very good as individual players, they blossom together. And that's, that's something that we don't see enough of or make enough of. Gareth Bale looked overpriced in Real Madrid's defeat at the Nou Camp. Has his Spanish dream gone sour already, Pedro? <laughs> uh, it's a bit early to judge. Uh, the poor guy hasn't really been fit. Maybe he was at 70 or 80% for the Clásico, but he had to play. When you pay uh, that much for a player, if he can walk, he's going to have to play in a Clásico. Um, the, the Barcelona papers uh, t- took uh, an opportunity to to have a dig at him saying that, that Real looked better uh, without him than, than, than with him on the pitch, which is actually is fair, but also because Bale was playing as a false uh, forward, as a false number nine. So um, it's, too, it's too early to tell, but of course we'll judge him plenty of times in the media until the, the final and intelligent um, final decision has been made. That tells me. It's hard to find a neutral who didn't have sympathy for Steve Bruce after a whole loss 1-0 to a highly debatable penalty at White Hart Lane. Can you put in a good word for AVB's team, Rory? Uh, it's a mark of quality to win when you don't play well. Um, they kept on going. In Roberto Soldado, they have someone who can take penalties really well. I think that's important. Um, yeah, you, you don't, they don't have difficult afternoons. Spurs, no question. They're not. They're not quite the finished article yet. And Hull, I've, I've seen Hull a couple of times now, and they're, they're quite good. Hull, they're well organised. They've got a, they've got a good spirit about them. They've got some decent players. Uh, they're not. They're not going to be pushovers. Steve Bruce's teams very rarely are. Uh, so I think yeah, Villas Boston take take solace from the fact that that challenge is out of the way. 
And it wasn't his fault, it was the fans' fault. Fulham were undone by Southampton's youth, energy and constant pressing. George, is there room in the Premier League for the strolling Dimitar Berbatov? Well, I hope so, yes, I hope so. There's always room for people who stroll and don't do things very quickly, because I don't do things very quickly. One of my favourite types of footballers is the old-fashioned midfielder who wouldn't leave the centre circle and would stand there smoking a cigarette almost, spraying the ball around and was too fat to move very quickly. I'm not saying that Dimitar Berbatov is fat, but he's languid. The problem for, for him is that if too many of his teammates are strolling. It was the battle of the Belgian strikers at Villa Park, Pedro. Is it only a matter of time before Roberto Martinez, who never looks smug, starts to look pleased with himself that in Lukaku he has the best Belgian of them all? <laughs> look, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting because Lukaku has hardly had a, a look-in during uh, qualifying for Belgium because he's been sitting on the bench and watching Christian Benteke do what he does best. And then uh, when Benteke can't play for Belgium because he's, he's injured, Lukaku comes in and scores two great goals against Croatia to seal qualifying. This is going to be a great debate. Uh, which one is the best Belgian striker in the Premier League and the best Belgian striker around? Uh, Lukaku keeps on getting better. Um, I think still right now Benteke is the more complete uh, player, but it, it could change at any moment, and both of them look like they are going to be world class if they're not already. So Martinez should be very, very uh, glad that, that Mourinho let Lukaku go. He could be in the top three scorers in the Premier League this season. I love Pedro's pronunciation of everything. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, either you love it or you hate it, I think. Maybe there's someone out there saying, I hope that guy would just things in a more normal way. Um, Alison, it says here that I meant to ask you about whether Arsenal are capable of staying top of the league, but I find that boring, so I'm going to ask you instead. Uh, our wonderful colleague Matt Dickinson has done an excellent interview with Michelle Platini in today's Times. 40-team World Cup, pros and cons, for or against? Oh, I'm for. Bigger the better. I mean, I'd be happy with a 64-team with a World Cup or 160 it, the maths don't work. 164. I no, go for it. Go for it. I like people who think big. I don't see any any point in Michel Platini being Michel Platini and having the power he has if he doesn't think big. There's always a danger that when rows like the racism row, for example, uh, come up, that you you start thinking negatively about the world coming together. And uh, I like the fact he's protecting Europe. Uh, it's you know loads of brownie points for Blatter when he says, "Come on, Africa needs to catch up." But uh, that does not mean that Europe has to, to make way. They just have to think bigger themselves. Thank you to the top, top team of Rory Smith, Pedro Pinto and George Colkin. Don't forget to check out details of our live shows via the links on our SoundCloud page. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification and you're away. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.